Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A silent epidemic of chronic illnesses affects tens of millions of Americans. These are diseases that are poorly understood, frequently marginalized, and can go undiagnosed and unrecognized altogether. In her new book, The Invisible Kingdom, Megan O'Rourke investigates this elusive category of invisible illness that encompasses autoimmune diseases, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, and now long COVID. Megan O'Rourke is author of uh, previously of The Long Goodbye, as well as uh, poetry collections, uh, Sun and Days, Once and Half-Life. Her writings appeared in Atlantic Monthly, New Yorker, New York Times, and uh, other publications. Uh, she's the recipient of Guggenheim Fellowship. She lives in New Haven, where she teaches at Yale and is editor of Yale Review. Megan O'Rourke, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. So before we get into your experiences, uh, you uh, you draw on your own medical journey. Um, that that seems like that's putting it mildly. Uh, a lot that you've gone through, <laughs> uh, as well as uh, you know, interviews with uh, many of the experts. I want to I want to start with long COVID. Um, having had you know yeah. this, your own journey, and uh, you know, beginning talking to well into uh, you know research for your book. Then you know March April of 2020. What uh, what were you especially looking at? You you must have had some prescience regarding the possibility of long COVID. You know, Tom. Sadly, I did. I had been working on this book, The Invisible Kingdom, for ten year, nearly ten years, and I'd been talking to researchers who are working on the idea that in a small group of people, or not a small group of people, a percentage of people rather, certain infections and specific viruses can create a a host of mysterious and puzzling long-term symptoms. So as I was, you know, reading the news about the coronavirus and as it hit the United States in the early spring of 2020, what kept me up at night was not just the acute wave that was hitting the East Coast at that time, but the haunting fear that soon we would be seeing a second wave of chronic illness, a crisis, um, the scope of which I thought we were not likely to be prepared for. And sure enough, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah. what uh, yeah. what are your thoughts now? What are you what are you hearing? What are you learning now? What two years in? Uh, and uh, certainly, yeah. many many cases of long COVID. Yeah. So that spring, I started lurking on. I was already on a lot of patient message boards because of my own um, illness story, but I started lurking on message boards and kind of reading about people who were you know, very quickly started showing up saying, I got COVID six weeks ago and I'm just still not better. I have brain fog. I have unexplained fatigue. Fatigue is actually too weak a word for what I'm experiencing. I'm not functional, right? Um, So I began reporting on long COVID at that time and writing a piece for The Atlantic in which it became clear that, you know, there's a, while there's a lot we don't know about long COVID, it's an umbrella term for what may be, you know, a related set of conditions that all involve in some way immunological dysfunction or dysfunction of the nervous system. So for some people, COVID is triggering um, incipient autoimmune disease that's beginning maybe much earlier in their lives than it otherwise would have, or maybe it never would have happened. Um, Others are experiencing this condition called POTS, which is a postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. You may have heard of it in the news. People are talking about it a lot where your heart races and you're, you know, trying to stabilize your blood pressure and you get dizzy and all sorts of fatigue and other problems can attend it. Um, There's some evidence that the virus may persist in small pockets of the body in some patients. There's evidence of micro blood clots. I mean, the the damage is extreme and varied, but what's clear is that the coronavirus can trigger this ongoing immunological dysfunction in a pretty significant subset of patients, maybe up to 30% of those who get it. And, yeah, of course, we're, we're learning that autoimmune diseases, uh, many of those are triggered by viruses, right? Yeah, so this is what I was already writing about, you know, sort of astonishingly, which is what I was watching and pretty much in horror as this happened. My entire book was about the, um, or part of the book, a lot of the research in it is about researchers who are at the cutting edge of 
understanding that in some people, let's say the Epstein-Barr virus can trigger um, multiple sclerosis, as a big study in the New York Times, that the New York Times just reported on, found. In others, it seems to trigger lupus. Um, there's a whole host of ways in which autoimmune diseases um, can happen, but one key factor is trigger through an infection. Yeah, and so watching long COVID and watching this immunological dysfunction I was really concerned because I knew that our medical system really struggles to diagnose these conditions and to treat them. We lack good tools to understand this kind of immune-driven illness. Mm. Uh, you've uh, you've said that uh, our understanding of autoimmune diseases lags at least a decade behind our understanding of cancer, for example. Yeah, so this is... Um, some, a Harvard researcher told me this when I was interviewing him. So, you know, we can get to my story, but I have an autoimmune disease that it took, you know, more than a decade to diagnose. And I was really fascinated by that. Because, I mean, I was horrified by it as I lived through it. But I was also, the reporter in me, the journalist in me was curious. Like, we live in a hyper-diagnostic age, right? It feels like you can get diagnosed with almost anything these days, including, you know, ice cream headache. So why were autoimmune diseases seeming to be so hard to diagnose. And what this researcher told me was that basically one reason is that medicine didn't believe that autoimmunity even existed until the 1950s or so. Um, And so we're far behind in our understanding, our research, our diagnostic tools, and our, you know, full range of treatment options. Um, we're, We're behind on autoimmune disease, far farther behind than we are on cancer. So, and you write a lot about our medical systems, the history of it, fascinating, and, and perhaps some of the reasons why we're, we, we just don't, as a system, don't do well with autoimmune diseases. So, yeah, let, let's get into your story. You quote Hemingway. You, uh, you say you got sick gradually and then suddenly. So it's, tell me that, first gradually and then the suddenly. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I often think, you know, wonder, okay, when did my illness begin? So what's mysterious about my story, and I think many chronic illnesses, um, is that I don't know when it started, right? And in fact, it turns out I have a genetic condition that it helps explain some things that were going on even when I was a child, just strange bouts of pain and tiredness. In my early 20s, I started to experience more severe symptoms such as vertigo and strange electric shocks that would travel up and down my body that were so severe. One morning, it started one morning as I was walking to work shortly after having graduated from college, and they were so painful on my legs that I had to stop and lean against the parking meter and kind of rub my legs till the sensation went away. Um, from there, bouts of fatigue, but you know, again, fatigue was a word that really didn't capture what I was experiencing. It was more like total cellular innervation. It was just a complete dysfunction of my brain and my body. Um, Yeah, just a whole host of strange symptoms, including pain and hives. But, you know, I would go to doctors and I would say, look, I'm tired. I don't feel right. Something seems wrong. And they'd run a battery of tests, um, usually pretty standard tests, and nothing would come up. And I was in my, you know, 20s, and I exercised, and I had a job that I loved. It was kind of a high-paced job. And so they would say, well, maybe you're just stressed. We think you're just stressed. And it took more than a decade uh, for me to get a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease and then also get this diagnosis of a genetic condition. Um, and finally, also a diagnosis of untreated Lyme disease, um, the treatment for which really dramatically changed my health for the better. So it was a quite strange period where I ended up in ERs more than once and yet was constantly being told we can't find anything wrong with you. And it, it, you're right, the, uh, our system's just not well set up for this, right? It's uh, Our system is set for certainty. You, you get the, you get, you get the yeah. lab test, you get the results back, and uh, that should lead to a diagnosis. And if, if it doesn't fit that, then... We're, you know, we're, we're kind of lost. Yeah. So our medical system is great at acute care and crisis care, right? It's great at, you know, fixing a broken bone, um, things it can measure, things it can fix. But these kinds of illnesses, autoimmune illness, um, chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis, fibromyalgia, they, 
long COVID, right, they require us to think about illness in a more complex way than we usually do. Um, one that's a bit more personalized and is based on the idea that bodies don't all respond the same way to things like infection or stress. Um, so, you know, and also the big challenge for medicine, as you say, is that it wants certainty for good reasons, right? Certainty and measurement has brought us longer lives, you know, the pivot toward lab work and x-rays and MRIs. At the same time, that pivot, which happened in the early 20th century, also meant that if you happen to be a person who lives in a body at the edge of medical knowledge, where medicine doesn't yet have the diagnostic tools to easily figure out what is ailing you, you tend to be disbelieved when you show up in the doctor's office and those don't show something measurably wrong, right? As one researcher I spoke to put it, she said those people just get, you know, disbelieved. They're seen as being cuckoo, she said, because we can't find what's wrong with them. And what we lack is a kind of tool for saying to patients or understanding these kinds of you know, diseases as ones where we might have to say, we believe something's wrong with you. We just don't know exactly what it is yet. Well, but that's, uh, you, you didn't get much of that, did you? You finally got that, <laughs> right? And, and, and I did. You know, it was sort of up and down. I mean, early on, my neurologist, I had an amazing neurologist who I saw pretty early on. She's still not, and she said, look, I completely believe you that you're having these horrific electric shocks. She said, I actually have tons of young women telling me similar things and young men. But um, And she said, so I completely believe you. And she said, I just don't know how to help you. I don't have the tools yet. And that moment meant so much to me. I always wanted to, I don't know if she knows how important it was, just because it was a moment of recognition and validation. And she said, I see that you're suffering, you know, and you're right. In general, I didn't get too much of that. Um, in part, our fragmented healthcare system didn't help. I had changing insurance. I had a new doctor who didn't know me at all. So I show up saying, I've got all these things going on. He was like, eh, I don't know. You're, you're just tired. Yeah. <clears throat> So uh, often, uh, and I think this was your experience as well, and of course we're talking about tens of millions of Americans, uh, often where doctors go is, well, this this must be maybe psychosomatic. Maybe this is in your mind. Maybe, you know, that casting about for explanations because they don't have uh, the results in the lab test. That's right. So the last, one of the things I try to really explain in the book is that we have a long history in which the less we understand about a disease or a symptom, the more we tend to psychologize that or stigmatize it. Um, so that, you know, multiple sclerosis, for example, which is now well understood as a medical disease, was seen as a form of hysteria at one point. Um, tuberculosis used to be viewed as um, a disease that tended to afflict you know, romantic people. Um, of course, later we found that there's a bacteria and it affects everyone. <laughs> um, even cancer was thought, you know, in the, in the late 20th and the mid 20th century to often be a consequence of repressed emotions. And one thing you'll notice that all of those have in common is that these sort of narratives or stories we told about those illnesses existed when we didn't understand very well the biological mechanisms underlying them and when we didn't have good treatments for them. So what I sort of tried to explain in the book is that, you know, these diseases like long COVID and autoimmune disease and myalgic encephalomyelitis and even ongoing symptoms from Lyme disease or tick-borne illness, they all fall in this category where we lack the tools to measure them, we don't really understand them, we can't really treat them, and so voila, right? It becomes, well, maybe something's wrong with you. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're imagining. Maybe you're a hypochondriac. Now, these autoimmune diseases, I think, disproportionately affect women. Is that true? That's correct. So yeah. a further problem is that 80% of people, roughly 80% of people living with autoimmune diseases are women for reasons that we don't fully understand. Um, and women, it turns out, face special problems in being believed by the medical system, broadly speaking. And there's a lot of data that shows that 
women who report pain tend to be diagnosed sedatives more often than men who report pain. Men who report pain are prescribed painkillers. Women's, you know, complaints of pain or fatigue are are more readily dismissed. So, yeah. Um. You, um, you you write, you know, you quote Hemingway there, you, you got sick gradually and then suddenly, I think uh, around the time of the suddenly where, where you got really sick was, uh, happened to be around the time when your, your mother was uh, battling cancer, right, and, and dying. Um, one of the results of, of that is that I think some of your doctors, some of the medical professionals thought, well, maybe this is internalized grief. Maybe this is emotional. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair to my doctors, too, like even I thought that, right? I thought, okay, I'm really traumatized by the death of my mother. She was, um, as you said, she was living with cancer and her last months were pretty harrowing ones. I was chips in and out of ERs and, you know, I helped take care of her like my brothers did. So I was depleted and exhausted. Um, And in fact, the day after she died, I got some kind of bad infection and ended up at the urgent care and was given antibiotics and just kind of never quite got better. Um, a few months later, a doctor found I had Epstein-Barr, and you're absolutely right that this was kind of the big downturn from which, until that time, Tom, I often thought, maybe this is in my head, maybe I'm just oversensitive. And then from that point on, I was then about 32 it just became really clear I was quite, quite sick. Mm-hmm. But again, it took it took about a year of thinking it was grief um, before it became clear, I should say. Mm-hmm. As you can hear, it was a murky mm-hmm. story. Yeah. There's an extraordinary yeah. scene in the, in the book really struck me where your mother is uh, ha, ha, has a diagnosis, right? Uh, she's essentially dying. Um, but you're just really sick, uh, you know, with, and you can't explain it. And, and you write that she... You can see in her eyes uh, a desire to live, right? And to, to she wants you to go out and, ex- and experience with her, and and you essentially can't get out of bed. Yeah, it was just really. I'll never forget it. It was. Um, I had gone to visit my parents in Connecticut. I lived in Brooklyn, New York at the time, and my mother, you know, had stage four colorectal cancer. She was on chemo. What would be her last round? And we'd had dinner on the patio the night before, and. I just woke up feeling groggy and, like, again, enervated. My body felt like it was made of sand. And I just remember her knocking at my door, you know, early that morning. It was a beautiful, not humid summer day. And she said, let's go to the beach and take a walk. And she just had more energy than I did, right? And I remember thinking, well, this something is, something is wrong. Well, let's take a break. We'll come but, back. You know, yeah, yeah okay. go ahead. No, go ahead. I was say, but, but one of the strange things that I try to get at, I'll say really quickly, is that when you, you know, go to the doctor and over and over, doctors are like, we can't find anything. We think you're fine. It's your own worldview that distorts, right? You end up thinking, okay, no, I'm, they're right and I'm wrong, right? So it's a very strange experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, you internalize it, right? It's... Um, you internalize it, yeah. And that's got to be... On top of the, you know, the the fright you must have of, hey, my my body's not working, and and will it ever get better? You have this overlay of of internalizing the, those emotions. Absolutely, yes, which is really alienating and quite isolating. I think, yeah. yeah. Well, let's take a break. We're talking with uh, Megan O'Rourke. Her new uh, book is The Invisible Kingdom: Reimagining Chronic Illness, and we'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Music Theater West, presenting Disney's Beauty and the Beast, March 4th through the 12th at the Ellen Eccles Theater. Ticket information at musictheaterwest.org. Support also comes from Les Olson Company, navigating the complexities of today's technology and finding the right solutions for businesses. Offering copier, printer, and scanner sales and service statewide with technical support and outsourced IT services. Information at lesolson.com. One of the things we count on to bring you local and national news is contributions from listeners. One way you can help is to donate a vehicle you no longer need. If you don't need it, donate it to UPR and it helps power the station. Thanks to Jane Kuda, who recently donated her old vehicle. We appreciate Jane's support and hope you'll join her if you've also got a vehicle you no longer use. Learn more and start the process at upr.careasy.org or call 877-877-877. 
7501. And thanks. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking with uh, the writer Megan O'Rourke. Um, she tells her own story of trying to get a diagnosis with autoimmune disease. Um, it took a long, long time, and uh, she also has done extensive research. The results an important books called The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. We're talking, of course, not only about Megan O'Rourke, but tens of millions of Americans. And, uh, of course, now long COVID is the, the, kind of the latest. Um, so, Megan O'Rourke, you want to read this. You write, uh, talking about your illness, uh, for a long, long time uh, undiagnosed. You knew you were really ill, but uh, couldn't fight, figure out why. Uh, so you say the illness was severe but invisible, and that invisibility made all the difference. It made me invisible, which itself almost killed me. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, so one of the things that was hardest about the illness was not just the symptoms that I was experiencing and the suffering that I underwent, but the fact that I had no framework for understanding it, right, no possibility of a diagnosis or treatment. And then that I was further isolated, that it wasn't even recognized as real, right? So I had no way of sort of sharing or building a new identity um, because I didn't have a new identity. That identity was going unrecognized. And it turned out that for me, at least, and I, I think for many of the patients and people that I interviewed, this loneliness was the, was the, <laughs> the hardest part, right? It's the part that almost killed us because... It's just a complete isolation, a sense that you're in an echo chamber in which no one will ever hear what you have to say. And in fact, that your own testimony, which might save you, is being discredited. And that's a really tough place to be. One thing you talk about in the book and, and, and demonstrate in you know, your journey is, the, I guess, the patient has to really become an advocate for themselves, right? Uh, it's... we. You, you write that uh, you were brought up in a family, many of us were, where, you know, the the doctor had the answers. <laughs> you went to the doctor, the doctor's going to have the yeah. answers. And and yet your journey illustrates, um, you know, sometimes they don't. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, right, I mean, my parents were kind of Irish Catholic baby boomers, and they were, you know, for good reasons, believers in not just science, but right, if the doctor said you were fine, you were fine. And so I took that. Um, I face value myself for a long time. And it was only over the years, and it was really only when I kind of ended up in ERs, I'm just clearly very, very sick, you know, unable to walk around the block, um, that I realized, no, I should have been advocating for myself all along, right? I, I had these intuitions, I kind of had symptoms that were very clear, something was wrong, and I didn't advocate for myself. And so one thing I try to lay out in the book and always want to say to listeners is, you know, you're the expert in your body in that way, right? Yes, we're not scientists, but you know if your body is different from how it used to be or if you're experiencing just a lot of strange little things. And it's really important to find that um, physician who can be a, an advocate for you and who can treat you with warmth and care. Um yeah, and about being being advocates for ourselves is one of the key things, and it's one reason I wrote this book to help people feel seen and heard. Do you think things are changing? So it's so hard to say, Tom. Right? I mean, I hope that I have, and I think it's, I think it's, a, you know, I think the chance is real, is that the scope of long COVID, which is so extreme. It's affecting so many millions of people at the, all at the very same time. It has a sudden onset. Um, that this is bringing new visibility to the kinds of chronic illnesses I write about in my book. And certainly a lot of the researchers I spoke to pointed to the fact that there is new funding research these infection-associated or infection-related conditions because, you know, we know there's a problem and it's associated with COVID and there's a lot of interest in understanding COVID better. So there's funding that hasn't been there before. The question is whether research centers are going to center patients' voices and really listen to the knowledge that patients have. Because I think if we just bark up the same old trees, we may not get very 
far. Um, and to give you an example of that quickly, I would mention, you know, I recently saw a paper setting out a research agenda for long COVID that basically is looking into the ways in which anxiety might be the trigger of long COVID um, or an important factor, right? And look, it's important to think about anxiety. It may play an important debilitating role in people's lives. But when you have thousands and thousands of people saying that they know their symptoms are not merely those of anxiety, (laughs) you have to listen to them, right? You have to actually try to take their knowledge at face value and do the science around it that would elucidate what they might know about their own bodies. I wonder if you could uh, tell me a little bit about that part of your, you know, self-advocacy um, and the frustration over years, right? And um, tell yeah. me a bit about that. Before you found, you know, doctors who would believe you, doctors who would say, hey, we'll admit we don't know, but we'll try to find out. Um, so butting your head up against <laughs> against, you know, the medical establishment. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. that that's, uh, and how do you keep going with that? It's really hard, right? And I think if you don't have support and resources, you um, you stop. I mean, one researcher I talked to said he's worried that, he's not a researcher, he used to run a big healthcare network, and he said there's too many patients who stop and they fall through the cracks and they suffer alone. Um, in my case, it took incredible financial resources that I didn't really have. I put, them, put the bills on credit cards um, and also just time resources, which I had because I had a flexible job. I was a writer-reporter. I taught at the university. Um, But I had spent a lot of time, you know, making appointments with specialists, traipsing from doctor to doctor, um, having medical records shared. I mean, all these things that don't happen easily necessarily in the American medical system, though we're making some strides in the right direction with electronic health records. Um, But yeah, I would show up for an appointment that I would have put quite a lot of hope into, you know, being referred to a specialist that someone would tell me, this person's brilliant, they'll help you, you know, only to be met with either we just can't find anything or in some cases, outright dismissal. One doctor sort of impatiently said to me, we're all tired, Megan, I don't know why I'm talking about being tired. Tired is just part of life, right? And I thought, well, I don't think you're tired is like my tired. I'm, I'm talking about something else. I don't, I don't, sleep isn't the problem, right? It's something cellular. So this was just an incredibly harrowing and lonely um, part of the journey. And I think the hardest part was not knowing that it would ever end, right? It just, it just stretched in front of me, like, will I ever have answers? And uh, especially since I didn't seem to have any advocates on my side. Hard to maintain hope in, in that condition, right? Um, did you have uh, did you did you have others? Did, did you find that that must be important, right? To find others just to just just to acknowledge, hey, there's someone else experiencing what I'm experiencing. That's a great question. Yeah, I did. I found others on patients groups online and you know patient groups have lots of people and can be a mixed bag but I really found wonderful like-minded people in them who helped give me some key tips and I think just by reaching out to my own social network you know I think at first I was to be honest really private about it um I didn't tell anyone I think I even felt some sense of shame right because the doctors weren't saying anything's wrong and as we talked about your own worldview gets distorted so for a long time i thought well this is a, something's just wrong with me i'm weaker than other people i don't know it's like it's, it was a sense of shame and over time as i got a little more desperate <laughs> i had to be more open with friends and my social network and that connected me to other people who were also struggling some of them also writers or filmmakers and just having those people you could email and say, hey, I'm going through this. Do you know anything about this? And they're also doing the kind of um, obsessive medical research that I was doing <laughs> really helped me feel like, no, this is not my problem. This is society's problem. We have a massive epidemic that we don't know how to treat and talk about publicly. This is uh, got to take a toll to put some stresses on relationships, right? And you write about that, uh, someone with chronic illness like you have. Uh, and especially the invisibility, not knowing, 
um, trying to know, right? Putting a lot of time into research and in the meantime being sick a lot of the time. Uh, maybe talk about that. What? Uh, how do you navigate that with with your relationships? It's really, really hard, Tom. And, you know, this is one thing I saw over and over on message boards actually online where people saying, my husband doesn't believe me or, you know, he doesn't understand why I don't have energy to be with my kids at the end of the day. And it was really heartbreaking to me. And I resolved if I was going to write this book that I was going to talk openly about it because I think it's one of the most difficult challenges of living with a chronic illness of any kind but especially a poorly understood chronic illness. Um, in my case, I felt lucky that my husband was one of the first people to believe me. You know, he was one of the first people to say, I do think you're really sick. But that belief was very abstract, right? Um, and in the absence of a diagnosis, he struggled too, right? Because I was getting sicker and sicker. But no doctor was giving me a label to explain that. And as I despaired, I think he just felt more and more remote to me, right? That this was an urgent, pressing reality for me. And for him, it was a reality, but it was abstract. And he was also powerless to do anything, which, you know, I actually interviewed him for the book. And I said, what was it like? And he said, I don't think you know how strange it is to be up close to this and be completely unable to help, which um, is a sentiment I heard from a lot of caregivers. It also caused strain because as I got sicker and sicker without answers, I started doing, you know, different wild sort of desperate things, like, you know, some alternative treatments that are, were really helpful to me, like acupuncture, and I think pretty reasonable and logical to try, and then some that were a little bit more out there, and he really struggled with that. Why are you doing those things? And I said, well, I have no answers. At this point, you know, I'm ready to try anything, not because I believe necessarily will help, but because I'm desperate. And don't you understand that? It was really hard for him to understand. So what is uh, your advice to caregivers? I think the number one thing that caregivers can do, actually, is listen intensely. Like, listen with full attention and validate or reflect back that this is real and that the person in front of you is being seen and heard. It sounds like a small thing, but it's a very powerful act we have to witness another person's suffering. Um, there's some really great work by a medical sociologist where he talks about this, that giving that act of witness is hard on us, but it's really important to do. Um, I think the other thing in a really practical way is Make sure you go to some doctor's appointments with the person you're helping or you love or it's your child or your wife or your husband or your mother. Um, just having another person at doctor's appointments to advocate for you is really important because also you can be a kind of credible witness saying, yes, I have seen this. I've seen this person have hives every day for a year. Um, it really helps, I think, add to the validity of what the patient is testifying. Let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with Megan O'Rourke. Uh, her latest book just out is The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. It's a memoir. She recounts her own journey with uh, autoimmune disease. Uh, also, a lot of interviews with experts. Um, and uh, we'll talk more about this. Uh, the Invisible Kingdom is the book uh, following this break. Support for UPR's 2022 Utah legislative coverage is made possible in part by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. More information at idrpp.usu.edu. Support also comes from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, presenting, presenting Symphony Concertant, OP81, Joseph Yongen and Requiem OP9, Maurice Duraflay, with guest organist Bradley Welch, Saturday, March 19th at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Danes Concert Hall. Details at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. This week on This American Life, we replay one of the most popular stories that we've ever put on the air about a brother and sister who want to escape a fantastically overprotective mom. And to do that, they invent an entire family, the McCreary's, who they say they're babysitting for. Not that the mom didn't get suspicious. She said, I just got off the phone with Mrs. McCreary. She hasn't seen you in weeks. That's this week. 
Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Megan O'Rourke. Her latest book is The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. So Megan O'Rourke, um, so I was reading your book, I, I was reminded of a, a movie I saw oh, m- many years ago. It's a movie about Chopin and his relationship with George Saint. Mm. Um, and there's a scene uh, where she's uh, basically trying to seduce him, and uh, he's very uncomfortable. And he says, I've been sick for so long, I, I don't really live in my body I, I i've kind of i try to be disembodied right mm. <laughs> trying to live ethereally mm. um you, you've you wrote in the book uh, i'll just quote you um i'm not myself i kept thinking but then who am i and who is this i who knows that i am not myself what do you talk about that the, the, the sense of self is is attacked right when you're when you're this sick yeah when i was sick um and searching for answers, I felt like an imposter. Um, the illness was so difficult to understand, and it would come and go, and it changed me neurologically, right? I had a lot of neurological and cognitive symptoms. So it wasn't just the loss of self that sociologists talk about illness bringing with it, in which you know, alienated from the identity once you once had, you have to build a new one, right? That's sort of true for any illness. Certain things you once did, you now can't do. Um, but it was also this more existential question of like, who am I? Is is this um, is this real? A is what I'm experiencing real, um, and how do I know if so? And then B, who am I um, if my very sense of mind has sort of disintegrated and. In retrospect, it makes a lot of sense to me to have learned that I had a bacterial infection, Lyme disease, that was in my brain, because it literally felt like aliens had taken over my brain, and I, I wasn't um, I wasn't exactly myself. But, you know, I think illness triggers a reckoning with who you are and who you want to be and who you now can be. So there is a lot of narrative rebuilding that happens as you... Um, struggle to accommodate yourself to this reality. In my case, when I first realized I was sick, I was hell-bent on getting better, right, finding a cure. And it was only over quite a lot of time that I was able to accommodate myself to the idea that I really was never going to be better in that sense of the word that, that well or able people use. But I could hopefully carve out a life where a lot of my symptoms were ameliorated and I kind of had some identity back, right? Which, which is, in fact, what happened. So uh, tell me about your life today. You've, you've got several diagnoses. It wasn't just one thing, right? It was several diagnoses. Um, and, <laughs> exactly. Um, so but, uh, I guess symptoms managed, but, uh, you know, not cured, but managed. Is that, is that what happens? Yeah. So in my case, right, getting the answers of what I think are the answers, there's probably still more to find, but of what was going on and what was causing a lot of my symptoms was kind of like peeling an onion. And this is also true for lots of people with these kinds of illnesses. Often if you have one, you have other issues going on too. So yeah, I was kind of constantly peeling the onion to really get at the full multi-causal reality of my symptoms because my symptoms had many causes, it turned out, that were somewhat interrelated. So today, I'm really happy to say I'm, I'm kind of at 80%. Early on in my um, journey, the first doctor who gave me a diagnosis, who I will be forever grateful to, she realized I had an autoimmune disease, told me one day, look, you're going to have to get used to the reality that you're never going to be 100% again. You know, you're going to always be 80% at best. And at the time, it was quite bruising to hear this, but it turned out to be one of the most helpful things that any doctor said to me, because she's right. And these days, I'm, you know, I'm at 80%, and I'll have what are called flares or periods where I get much sicker. Um, In November, I had a really bad flare, and I had to kind of change my life for a bit. Um, I have a lot of restrictions, like, you know, I really need to sleep. I go to bed early. I... I'm allergic to a bunch of foods. I can't go in the cold because it triggers my nervous system problems, things like that, that, you know, really do impact my life and my ability to, like, take my kids on play dates outside. But 
other hand, I have my kids. I can keep up with them some days. <laughs> and I was able to write this book. So I do feel that that's part of one reason I'm so passionate about this um, telling the story is that, you know, I think there are a lot of people suffering who probably could be helped more than they are. You know, it's, it's not a narrative of overcoming, but a narrative of recognizing and helping. Um, there's a lot of people suffering whose suffering we, we really could alleviate to some degree. Uh, how do you talk about this to your kids? How do you make them understand? Yeah, Tom, this is one of the hardest things. So, you know, I described those electric shocks. Um, I still get them sometimes. And in fact, when I had this flare in November, they were pretty severe. And they're worst early in the morning, which is usually when I'm with my kids, trying to get them ready for school. They're pretty young. And the first time, I just remember really vividly, my son was about, my older son was about three, and he saw me going through this, and it's extremely painful. So he could tell, you know, his mom, he saw me, and he said, Mom, what's wrong? And he heard me saying something to my husband. And so, you know, he understands that I have these periods where I'm not well. And it's pretty heartbreaking, actually. The other day, um, there was like a parent's uh, coffee at his school, and he was really excited for us to come. We haven't been able to go in his school because of COVID and it's the first time. And he just looked at me and he said, Mom, there's one really important thing. I had no idea what he was going to say. And I said, what? He said, I just hope you don't have electric shocks that day and you can't come. So, you know, I'm going to get teary thinking about it. But I realized that it, it plays a large role in his life, too, right? He understands that I can't rely on good health every day. Mm. Yeah, that's. Uh, of that's, course, I try to protect them from some yeah. of it, but they see it. They're not, you know, kids are sponges and they see everything. And this will be ongoing, right? Uh, you'll, you'll, as they get older, yeah. uh, different ways that you'll explain this to them, yeah, and navigate it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. I was, I was really struck by this uh, finding. I, I think we want to find meaning in suffering, right? And you. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to quote you here. Uh, this is making it work. Um, there is a razor thin line between trying to find something usefully redemptive in illness and lying to ourselves about the nature of suffering. And then you go on to say, I will not say the wisdom and growth mean I wouldn't have it uh, any other way. I would have it the other way, right? Which you can understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Do uh, you gain wisdom? And what have you gained from this, do you think? Yeah. So I do talk at the end about the wisdom I gained and the ways in which I healed because I did gain wisdom and there was some healing, right? I didn't get better in the traditional sense, but I I healed in some ways. And the reason that I talk about that is I want us as a society to see that there is healing. I think we can do sort of structurally in our healthcare system, et cetera. But I also, as you just said, you know, I try to be really careful about not making this a memoir that's about like, the idea of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Because one of the things chronically ill people encounter a lot, and I think people with disabilities encounter this in a slightly different but related way, is this idea that our suffering should spiritualize us, you know, that that people want to see us suffer with grace, in my case, um, in the case of chronically ill people. There are some medical sociologists who just praise, you know, the strength of those living with chronic illness for those who are handling it with, you know, such grace. And the point I try to make is that the conditions for grace aren't always there, and it's also not the responsibility of the chronically ill to make the well feel better about our plight, <laughs> as it were, right? Um, and I, so I tried to make this a book that in some ways resists the very American impulse to say, you know, at the end, it was worth it, right? That I suffered and I overcame. Well, I didn't exactly overcome. I changed, and I do try to portray that. And in that change, there is hope, I think. Um, But we have to be really careful about taking away the reality, invalidating the reality of people's suffering before we've even recognized it by saying, oh, you know, you've gotten so much. Here's the silver lining. Uh, I noticed on your on your website you have a, a series of answers to frequently asked questions, and you. Um, so I'd like to address this. We only have about three three or four minutes left, um, and you're careful to say I'm not a doctor, right? But of course you've gone you've done a lot of research mm-hmm. and you've gone through this. Uh, what do you tell people when they ask you, you know, what uh, what they should do? Yeah. 
I think the most important baseline thing that I didn't do for myself, I wish I had, was to be an advocate for yourself, right? To be a kind of relentless advocate when you can, when you have that energy, you know, don't take it face value. If you know something's wrong, don't let someone else tell you it's not. Um, the second thing is to try to inform yourself about what, you know, you know, and knowing that you're not a doctor, but just trying to, in my case, I made a checklist of like, okay, Lyme disease, autoimmune disease, you know, all these things that I, you know, I have an autoimmune disease, but I also have these symptoms and then just really kept trying to get um, physicians and um, practitioners who could help me. I, I made lifestyle changes. I did acupuncture because that really helped me, right? So I think figuring out your own case, what is going to support you most and um, not giving up hope if that's possible, which I know is really, really hard. Mm. Do you, uh, what are you working on next? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I know my, my last book was about grief and death and this book is about illness. So I'm hoping I'm moving in a, in a happier direction now, but I don't know. I'm taking a little time actually just to read some books and spend time with my kids. Cause this book has been, uh, almost a decade in the making. So it's older than my children are. And, uh, they're ready for me to spend a little time with them and relax. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, maybe a little uh, lighter, lighter fare. Uh, by the way, <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll recommend The Long Goodbye. That's from 2011. Uh, uh, you know, timely anytime, this, you know, especially during COVID and people losing folks. Uh, you know, one, of the, one of the main things you treat in that book, uh, what does it mean to mourn in a culture that's uncomfortable with grief? Uh, so it's, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a big question. Yeah. And related to this one, right? Which is yeah. what does it mean to be chronically ill in a comfortable in a country rather that's uncomfortable with people who don't recover. Yeah. <laughs> right? And yeah. uncomfortable with uncertainty. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're related, I think. Well, the the latest book from Megan O'Rourke is The Invisible Kingdom Reimagining Chronic Illness and uh, that's out and available now. Her website is meganorourke.com. Megan O'Rourke, uh, thank you so much for for taking time to be with us. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for this rich and stimulating conversation. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone. We have uh, some great uh, we have some great um, programs coming up uh, tomorrow. Uh, the writer Isabel Allende had a chance to uh, talk to her. So we'll have that uh, interview tomorrow. And uh, then on Monday, we'll talk about women in politics. And we'll be talking with our lieutenant governor, Lieutenant Governor Henderson. Um, those are just a couple of programs coming up. Hope that you'll stay with us uh, for those. And thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. When members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints first arrived in Utah in 1847, they set about changing Utah's arid environment with irrigation techniques and canals that affect our landscape today. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Cultural landscapes are a combination of natural and built elements that reflect a people's values. In Utah, part of our cultural landscape was shaped by the unique relationship between members of the LDS Church and water. Mormons relied on a particular kind of city planning, fueled by communal investment in water control that was unique in the American West. In 1861, Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, passed through Salt Lake City and wrote about it in his 1872 book, Roughing It. He marveled at the tidy, orderly city, and his description of Salt Lake City was quite idyllic, due in large part to water. He wrote, quote, We strolled about everywhere through the broad, straight, level streets, no visible drunkards or noisy people, a limpid stream rippling and dancing through every street in place of a filthy gutter, block after block of trim dwellings, Branches from the street stream winding and sparkling among the garden beds and fruit trees. In addition to the gridded streets and lots, unpainted wooden fences, farm buildings, and Lombardy poplar trees, 
Mormons used irrigation ditches to achieve their vision of tight-knit communities on the American frontier. Whereas most of the American West has isolated homesteads, Mormon villages modeled after those in New England meant that Utah towns were more interconnected via canals. By the 1850s, the first in a series of laws to organize canal companies in Utah territory were written, solidifying man-made waterways as a central element in Utah's cultural landscape. Settling arid lands where water was scarce, Mormons knew they would need to control it through dams, irrigation, and communal labor. By 1850, a mere three years after settlement, there were already 16,000 irrigated acres in Utah. It is this intersection of the natural arid land of Utah and the cultural Mormon desire for an irrigated farm community that defined how much of Utah was settled and how our water got used. While the landscape Mark Twain saw in 1872 is hardly visible in the urban Wasatch Front today, it is still an image common in rural Utah. This episode was contributed by the University of Utah American West Center. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. This is the 15 Things Utahns Can't Live Without During a Pandemic, On Air Edition. Honest reflections from regular people about the objects and things that have mattered most the last two years. My name is Mary Bybee. It's uh, been a lot of fun to sit and think about it. Think about the things that I really needed and uh, couldn't live without. The leash and the training pouch. Um, Our German Shepherd had passed away in the summer. And so it was amazingly difficult to go and find another puppy. You had to just look online, and we just didn't know how to do it. You couldn't really go to people's houses anymore. And we just kept at it, and I kept at it and kept researching it. And, you know, we've raised and trained German shepherds for close to 40 years. And uh, so I did finally find one, and I... What a great time it was to uh, go pick her up from the airport. Her name's Tasha, and that's why I have the leash and the training pouch on there is because she pretty much single-handedly kept the COVID away from us, you know. She, she kept that out of our minds, and it was like a new life into our home that, that has really helped us. That is just irreplaceable. To learn more about the project and to listen to the rest of the stories, go to upr.org. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. <laughs>